Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with David Marchik, the author of The Peaceful Transfer of Power An Oral History of America's Transitions. He's the dean of the business school at American University and was the director for the Center of Presidential Transition. He was also a member of the transition team that worked to, tra- to trans to transition from Trump to Biden. So certainly plenty to chew on there. Uh, thanks so much for being here, David. Thanks for having me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. When I was becoming politically aware in the early 1990s, it was simply understood that no matter the party, the person the voters had chosen would have the full logistical support of the outgoing president and that America would continue on as an example of a nation where country was more important than power. Even in the year 2000, it was understood, it was a given that once there was a firm ruling over Florida's vote count, the Clinton team would hand the reins of power to a political nemesis and that the outgoing VP would certify his own demise. George Bush even said in his inaugural address that the peaceful transfer of power is rare through history, but common in our country. What we didn't realize until 2020 and 2021 was how much that system depended on the good faith of the people involved, that the system itself might not be enough to make the transfer peaceful on its own. So, David Marchik, how can an oral history of presidential transitions help preserve peaceful presidential transitions? Thanks again for having me, Evan, and I'm really impressed with everything you do on your podcast, and I'm honored to be with you. So I wrote the book essentially to help highlight how the peaceful transfer of power is fundamental to American democracy. You know, for 223 years prior to the year 2020, handoffs were smooth, and in the modern era, They were nonpartisan. As you mentioned, George W. Bush had one of the most contentious transitions ever coming into office, Bush v. Gore, in your home state, Florida, where there was 537 votes, which determined the outcome of the election. And there was a peaceful transfer of power and cooperation from the outgoing to the incoming. So the book highlights the good, the bad, the ugly of presidential transitions, what's worked well, what hasn't, and also highlights what the country can do better to ensure that this hallmark of our democracy continues in a nonpartisan, good government way in the future. Why oral history? So the reason I did an oral history is because I had a podcast called Transition Lab, which analyzed every aspect of presidential transitions. We did a deep dive on every modern presidential transition since Carter, plus the historic transitions like Buchanan to Lincoln and Hoover to Roosevelt. We had chiefs of staffs and political advisors and the people that ran transitions. And then we took the transcripts from the podcasts and the lessons learned and put them into a book. And therefore, it was an oral history of presidential transitions. 
And it it makes it lighter, interesting. You get to read the transcripts and it's kind of fun, hopefully. It was it was so funny. I um literally picked up the Chris Whipple book on Joe Biden's uh, presidency. It came out just a few days ago and I was in the middle of preparing for this episode and there was your name in the first few pages of it when I was like, "Whoa, that's that's funny." Um the book describes how you were summoned to the White House by sort of I don't know how else to say it, a shadow group in the Trump White House well before the election was held to begin the preparations for a transfer of power that we would later learn Donald Trump had no interest in fostering himself. Um, Did you realize when you were first called to the White House how blinking red this system could become? Not at all. It's a great question. And the Chris Whipple book is great. It's really interesting, fascinating book. So I met a fellow named Chris Liddell, who was the deputy chief of staff for President Trump in January of 2020. I was working on this project and I went to the White House with a fellow named Josh Bolton, who was chief of staff to George W. Bush. And Josh handled the transition out of office of George W. Bush, which we can get into. That's considered the gold standard of transitions. So Josh and I went in to talk to Chris Liddell and the goal was to talk to him about what, what he's planning. If Trump were to win, he was in charge of the transition planning for the second term. And also if Trump were going to lose. And so we went through the breakfast. It was an interesting breakfast. It was, you know, at the White House mess. And at the end, Josh, who's a wise Washington hand, looked at Chris and said, all right, what's your plan if you're going to lose, if Trump loses? And there was this awkward pause because nobody in the White House plans to lose. And Chris said, I guess I have to figure that out. So I didn't know that one year from that moment, this was January of 20. 19, that literally the biggest crisis in democracy since the Civil War would occur with this White House. Fortunately, there were good people like Chris Liddell, who was very loyal to Donald Trump, but he was more loyal to the democracy and to our Constitution. And he helped usher in Joe Biden to office after it was clear that Donald Trump lost. What exactly is being transitioned, right? Like, it's not just the guy standing in the Oval Office. It's not just the guy who gets to give the big speech at the beginning. Explain, if you can, the incredibly elaborate government we have and why it's not enough to just say, well, the guy at the top is the di- is different, but everything else is the same. What is the transfer of power actually mean? Okay, so think about both sides. You have the government, you have the new government coming in, and you have the old government going out. The new government coming in has literally the top layers of the government disappear. So there's a new president, there's a new vice president. The entire White House staff leaves. So I came in with President Clinton in 1993. The building was empty at noon on January 20th. The desks were empty. There were no files. The computers didn't work. There was no memo saying, here's what you should do in your job. I had your old job. It would be like at a corporation, if the CEO, the CFO, the COO, all the vice presidents, all the senior vice presidents, all the assistant vice presidents left on the same day, and a new CEO is there bringing his or her team in and had to fill all these positions. So a new president 
has the obligation responsibility to fill 4,000 political positions, 4,000. 1,250 of them need to be confirmed by the United States Senate, which takes months and months and months. So a new president also needs to figure out what the priorities are, what the policy objectives are. They have to issue orders on day one. They have to manage the government of 2 million people, 2 million civilians and 2 million in the military. They have to prepare a new budget. The outgoing under law, under laws that were created post 9-11, has a responsibility and an obligation to prepare for a new government to come in. They need to prepare memos. They need to facilitate briefings, provide intelligence briefings to the incoming staff and organize the government for this handoff. Because while the government may change, terrorists don't stop targeting the United States because it's January 20th. The economy or crises don't stop. And a new president has to be ready. And I was thinking about it. Every federal department has lives at stake. Uh, and you can look at it in any number of ways. I mean, Okay, the the Pentagon, that's obvious, but the Department of Interior watches over our parks and their park rangers have to be well-trained to make sure people are safe in their parks. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture has, you know, see, oversees our food supply. I mean, this is really big stuff. It's huge stuff. And I'll just give you a couple examples of where two transitions in the modern era, era literally had life and death consequences, okay? Let's take the Bush to Obama transition, okay? The day before Obama's inauguration, intelligence agencies picked up a credible threat of a terrorist attack on the mall during the inauguration. And the Bush administration, the outgoing team, Condoleezza Rice, Steve Hadley, the incoming national security team, which included Hillary Clinton, General Jones, and others, they work together to basically try to combat this terrorist threat, but also to figure out what do we do if there's a terrorist attack on the mall? To the point where there was discussions in the Oval Office with the Bush people and the Obama people, do the presidents leave the stage? What image does that send if you have two presidents running off the stage? Um. And in the Trump to Biden administration, that was the peak of COVID, the peak. In the period between the election and the inauguration, 172,000 Americans died of COVID, 172,000. So the most important issue for Biden when he came into office was not a foreign policy issue. It was not an economic issue. It was not even a policy issue. It was a logistics issue. The the vaccine was built, manufactured, developed under the Trump administration, but it was in, administered under the Biden administration. And you remember these huge vaccine centers with you know thousands and thousands of people, the military run. The, the Biden people could not talk to the Pentagon, the Department of Health, the Budget Office, and others about this during the stalled transition. And literally, lives are at stake. It used to be that the Electoral College, and we sort of learned this in college, um, that the Electoral College amplified even a marginal victory that and gave the incoming president a mandate 
not just to govern, but to take over the the workings of the federal bureaucracy. JFK is a good, a good example of that. Clinton's a very good example of that. Um, in the last 20 years, though, we've had two occasions where the voters and the Electoral College were not on the same page. The people chose one person. The Electoral College elected someone different. Um, from your judgment, how much does the Electoral College system jeopardize the peaceful transfer of power? I actually don't think it does that much. Um, story, even modern times, even in like the Bush v. Gore uh, election, a new president earns the support of a majority of American people. So Clinton, for example, you know, it was a three-way race. He only won 43% of the vote. But once he became president, he had, you know, his ratings went up by 15, 20%. And the country kind of comes together behind a new president. Same thing for George W. Bush. They the country came together. Now, there were hardcore Democrats, many of whom are my friends, who basically said, this is an illegitimate election. It was decided by the Supreme Court. I don't recognize it. But most of the country basically came behind him. I think the last couple of elections, the partisan nature of our society has gotten so hardened that that American spirit of coming together behind a new president has kind of dissipated or evaporated. And I'm hoping we get back to the old times. So it's the it's the partisan breakdown that has changed things and partisan feelings more than the electoral college. Um, and let let's go back uh, to the beginning. Um, George Washington in the in the Hamilton play famously says, "You have to go on without me." What precedents did George Washington set in real life um, for the peaceful transfer of power? So George Washington famously gave up power, which there was no tradition of that. There was no tradition. He handed the reins off to John Adams in 1797, and that led to what's now 225 years of peaceful transitions. And we've had presidents who have not wanted to leave, but they've always left. And there's always been a peaceful transition of power. We've had two times in our American history where there's been violence. One was the Civil War where between the time that Lincoln was elected and the time he took his oath, oath of office, seven states seceded. A separate president was elected in the South, Jefferson Davis. Half the cabinet, the Buchanan cabinet, basically declared their loyalty to the South. Congress was ineffective. The Secretary of Treasury said that Lincoln was an enemy of the, of the people, and there was violence. And in the book, I interviewed the wonderful historian, um, Ken Burns. I interviewed him twice. First time I interviewed him was the summer of 2020. And I'm focused on, you know, the minutia in government and, and making transitions better, personnel and operations. And Ken said, you know, Dave, you're focused on all the minutia. Let's step back and look at this majesty of our country. In the 223 years since George Washington handed the, the baton to John Adams, no troops have been alerted, no arms have been raised, no shots have been fired, and nobody's been killed. And I had him back after January 6th. And I said, Ken, last time you were on, you said, 
No troops were alerted. No arms were raised. No shots been fired. Nobody's been killed. Now what say you? And this is the man that chronicled the Civil War, the Vietnam War, some of the worst parts of American history. And he said, the country's never seen anything like this. And he said, this is the second worst transition in history, only behind the Buchanan to Lincoln transition. Um, and why do historians, I've had other historians say this on the show, so it's not just you. Why have other historians, or why have you, and why do most historians seem to argue that even though all those things happen between Buchanan and Lincoln, it can still be considered a peaceful transition? Well, I don't think that they would say that the transition was peaceful because you had Americans killing Americans soon after Lincoln was elected. Um, and in fact, Lincoln took a train trip to Washington, D.C. for 13 days, and he didn't step foot in the South. The farthest South he went, besides Washington, D.C., was Cincinnati, Ohio. So that was a violent transition. People died during that transition. Um, and it wasn't an, a kind of the same type of insurrection against the government or, or challenging the outcome of the election. It, it basically led to a fissure in our country. Uh, there certainly have been um, presidents who handed off power to people who were political nemeses, almost back to the very, very beginning. Um, do we know some of the early articulations that they made as they prepared to hand the reins of government off to the next person, um, say either Adams to Jefferson or John Quincy Adams to Jackson or Buchanan to Lincoln or maybe some other more obscure ones. What do we know about what the earlier president said about this transfer and whether it should be peaceful? Well, Adams, of course, and Jefferson were bitter enemies. And there was the disputed election of 1800. And it was such a combative election that Adams didn't even show up for Jefferson's inauguration. But nevertheless, he left. And, uh, you know, the government was tiny then. You can't even make the same comparison. Um, Hoover and Roosevelt hated each other. You know, the uh, Clinton to Bush transition was challenging because you had Al Gore as the sitting vice president running against Bush. And everybody in the White House supported Gore, of course. So there have been some challenging transitions, but they've, but they've been peaceful. And even... You know, I'll give you an example. Donald Trump withheld intelligence briefings from Joe Biden for a while during the transition. Okay. Even Clinton provided George W. Bush with intelligence briefings while the election was disputed when his sitting vice president was seeking to be the victor. So... You know, even in the most heated, disputed election of the modern era, where it was close, the Trump election with Biden was not close. You know, it was the same the same electoral count that he won, which he said was a landslide. The Bush v. Gore was close, 537 votes. Florida was the only state determining who would win 270 electoral votes. And there was a mandatory recount provision under state law. So we literally did not know who was going to win that election. Have you found that the um, through history, have you found that the transfer of power, the peaceful transfer of power has depended more on the politics and the party of the individual or the personalities of the individuals? 
Great question. It's more on the personalities of the individuals. So, you know, George W. Bush was an MBA. He was focused on management. He had a very effective transition in, even though it was shortened. And he had a very effective transition out. Bill Clinton, who I worked for in the campaign and who I worked for in the White House, had a terrible transition in. You know, he was he was the guy that was the late kid in class that would studied late at night, the night before the election, and came in and aced the tests. And I was the kid that was studying all along, and Clinton did better than you know. <laughs> right. And with and one of you was sitting in the Oval Office, and you're sitting here right now talking to me, right? <laughs> and the uh, the you have to plan the, for the transition very early. In fact, in the book, I interviewed Mac McClarty, who was Clinton's chief of staff. And he said, Clinton didn't put a lot of effort in the transition. Actually, Clinton wrote about this in his own uh, autobiography. He said he didn't want to see, seem presumptuous. He didn't want to allocate a lot of time and energy. And, you know, he he focused on the cabinet in Arkansas, and that's what ran the government. So Mac McClarty in the book, I asked him about this, and he said, basically, if you fall behind in a transition planning effort, you can never catch up because the pace of work accelerates in a logarithmic way as you get closer to the election. You need to start planning in March, April of the election year, starting to hire staff, and um, you just can't fall behind. You can never catch up. Uh, I'm really curious about other countries. Um, I'm not sure how much of an expert you are, but I figured you know a little bit at least. Um, can we, did we export this idea of peaceful transitions of power? And then the reverse of that question is what can we learn from other countries? Um, who does it well, both on paper and practice? Well, yes, we did export it. Our model became a model for the rest of the world. Um, you know, I would say the UK does it pretty well, but they have a very different system. You know, literally a, a few days after there's an election, the new the new prime minister comes in. There's there's not a long interregnum. And basically a new prime minister brings in new ministers and each minister will have one or two aides. So there's a very small number of change in personnel. No other country models themselves on our version of a transition. Having to appoint 4,000 new people, it's a flawed structure. And Congress makes it worse every year because they add new positions and new restrictions and they slow down. And so the structure is, is fundamentally flawed. I'm a business school dean. If I wrote a paper saying that this is the way an effective transition should happen, I'd be fired. <laughs> um, how do we shore all this up then? What, what are the answers? Where do the answers lie? Um, does Congress need to change laws or does there need to be better understandings between administrations? And what? And I would also now add, it occurs to me, what pressure does the media have to enact on the incoming and outgoing administrations? Okay. Great question. So first of all, Congress just fixed a provision of the law, which was shown to have a flaw in the Trump-Biden transition, which was, there was this little known provision called ascertainment, which is 
the head of the General Services Administration, which is an agency most people have never heard of, they manage the real estate and other aspects of the government, has the responsibility for determining the, for ascertaining the winner of the election. And basically the reason it was vested with the GSA is because a new president-elect needs space and computers and logistical support. So it was seen to be a ministerial act, but under Trump, this became a political act and the head of the GSA withheld approval for 20 or 30 days, slowing the transition. So Congress just enacted a new law which says that if there's a dispute that each side shall be given the benefits of being treated as if they're president-elect. They get space, they get access to intelligence briefings, they can get personnel to start to get cleared. The most important thing Congress could do is to reduce the number of officials that need Senate confirmation. Um, it just slows down the process. It takes three, six, nine months. Biden, at the end of his first year, only had about 130, 140 officials confirmed by the United States Senate. Yeah, and why are That's we- 10%. Why, yeah, and why are we confirming the undersecretary of undersecretary of undersecretary- Exactly. Even the Veterans Affairs Department or- I mean, one, the Pentagon might be one thing, but. Exactly. Assistant secretary in charge of dealing with the media. That doesn't need to be confirmed. Right. So ultimately, I think more than the media, the American people should demand results. So when the American people evaluate a candidate, they should evaluate the candidate's focus on managing the government as one of the aspects of the candidate's attributes to be president. Are they planning a transition? Are they planning ahead? Do they have people that are thinking about these issues? Do they have a plan in place? Because if a new president, if an, if a candidate gets to November 5th or 6th or election day and doesn't have a plan in place, people in place, the country is going to hurt. Those letters that they leave for one another really leave a mark on our psyche and everyone there's always lots of reporting done to try and find out what's in them um certainly it was easier to get information on those um in previous years but i don't believe trump ever revealed what obama said and i don't believe that biden has revealed what trump said um how important are those letters in that last flurry as someone takes office um how important is that to the 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 transfer itself you know, it's not that important to the actual governance, but it's important to the psyche of the outgoing and the incoming. And it's a symbol of the peaceful transfer of power. You know, it's like, why does it matter if President Trump didn't show up to the inauguration of Joe Biden? It doesn't really affect Biden's ability to take office, but it's the symbolic nature. It's it's sending the signal. It's projecting this peacefulness of the transfer of power. And Trump was only the fourth president in history to not show up to his successor's inauguration. The last one was Andrew Johnson. So, you know, there's some wonderful letters. George H.W. Bush wrote the most gracious letter to Bill Clinton, even though Bill Clinton cleaned his clock in the election. And it was, you know, it was And they very were mean bitter. to each other, yeah. They were mean to each other, absolutely. And they became friends later on, but they didn't like each other in the election. You know, and that letter, you know, it's, I've gone back and read it a couple of times. It's the, it's the most gracious, thoughtful, patriotic letter that you can imagine. And this is a man who had just been defeated. 
man who all he wanted to do for the rest of his whole life was be president and the state president. And he was defeated by, by someone he thought was inferior in skills and, and capability to him. And so I love those letters. Just if you like history, they're wonderful. What does history suggest about why this transfer um, is so important to our psyche and to the way our governments work? Can, In other words, can we take the way a transfer went and then look at the results of the next administration afterwards? Yes. And a lot of this also depends on the personality of the president. So I'll just give you an example. In the book, I interviewed Stu Eisenstadt and David Rubenstein. They worked for Jimmy Carter. Um, and he really Jimmy, didn't want to leave. I mean, he was spent that last night in the Oval Office, you know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But coming in, Carter planned a transition. He had a team work on it, but he didn't tell the campaign team that he had a transition planning effort. And so a week before the election, these stories started to appear in the newspaper. Carter's planning this, Carter's planning that, he's planning this priority. And the campaign team said, where are these stories coming from? And so what happened is Stu went to President, to candidate Carter, Governor Carter, and said, where's the stuff coming from? And Carter said, oh, you didn't know I had this transition team planning for my presidency. And that created a clash. You know, in any organization, there's clashes and there's tension. So you had the campaign team that basically said, we won the election for Carter. We deserve the spoils of the election. And you had the transition team who said, you know, those campaign people, they're political hacks. We actually know how Washington works. So, so we should take all the top positions. And they fought. And Stu said that that conflict imperiled the Carter administration's first year. It handicapped him. It put handcuffs around his his. Um, and that had a big impact. And Chris Christie, who planned Trump's transition, you know, he famously, he did a good job, governor of New Jersey. He did a good job. He planned it and he did after the election. And I asked him what the implication was for Trump and Trump's and Christie said Trump never recovered. He didn't get his people in place. He had more cabinet. He had more nominations failed. He had more turnover. And all the first day executive orders that were priorities were later overturned by courts. And so he basically said, we never recovered. Hmm. Um, how can we as a public, and this was not a question until 2016 and maybe till 2020, but there were some rumblings about this in 2016. Um, mostly that would have been about accepting the results of the election, but um how can we as an, the American people evaluate um, the people who are running for president and make sure that we elect people who are going to respect this tradition of peaceful transfer of power? Great question. So best practice has been for a candidate for office to make some type of public disclosure in kind of early summer, late spring about the existence of a transition team, the people on it, and what the responsibilities of that transition team should do. That sends a signal to the American public. Are they serious people? Are they thoughtful? Are they experienced? Are they people that are focused on the operations of government not being political hacks or, or you know partisan warfare? And the American people can evaluate that. So for example, uh, Joe Biden, appointed Ted Kaufman, who was a former senator, 
uh, his longtime advisor and Jeff Zients, who just was elected, who just was appointed chief of staff. Jeff is one of the most effective, most uh, organized managers in the country, one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And that sent a signal that Biden cared about running the government effectively and efficiently. Now, you can disagree with Joe Biden's policies. You can disagree with his objectives and priorities. But having a guy like Jeff Zients run the transition sends a signal that you're serious about management of the government for the benefit of the American people. Just like Reagan appointing Jim Baker was a signal. Um, what were you thinking January 6th as someone who had been called to the White House to to try and help this go okay? Um, what were you thinking January 6th as you watched this unfold? Okay, so I remember the day like it was yesterday. My wife and my two kids and I flew down to Florida for our first vacation in over a year because we were shut down by COVID. And we landed around two or three in the afternoon after being dark for, you know, a few hours. And I got a phone with text and mail. One of those calls was from Chris Liddell in the White House. And Josh Bolton and I got on the phone with him. And this is a tough guy. He was CFO of Microsoft. He was CFO of General Motors. He's been in politics forever. Um, a man in his 60s who's been through a lot. And he was weeping. Unable to compose himself. He was literally about what was happening to our country. And he said, I have to resign. And Josh and I basically said, you can't resign to land this plane. You have responsibility to the country to facilitate the smooth and peaceful transfer of power. That if you resign, you may get a short article that says you resigned out of principle. But you've been with Trump for four years. And so the next 14 days are critical for you to do everything you can to enable the smooth and peaceful transfer of power. And he stayed. And again, I'm a Democrat. I don't like Trump. Um, I felt I was in a job that was nonpartisan and I took that nonpartisan nature seriously. And so um, I was very, very even keeled and worked, or I worked equally with the Biden team and with the Trump team. And, and did you, um, I don't know how much of this you've said publicly yet, but did you engage further with people on both teams after January 6th. 100% every yeah. day. Uh-huh. Every day. Yeah. Uh and can I ask what the what the particular work you were doing was? So there was a period of time uh prior to the election where I was talking to both sides and you know there was a small group of officials on both sides that knew I was talking to both sides, and I would share high-level information. So to the Biden team, I would let them know that Chris Liddell and the people on his team were doing an effective job. They were taking it seriously, and they were doing a good job. And the Biden people, they were baffled by it. They're like, Dave, you're BSing us. That can't be true. I said, no, it's true. And for the Trump team, I would say 
the Biden team are expecting this, this, and this if they are to win, and you should be prepared for this. And then I also was talking to the Trump team about their plans should they win a second term. Then after the election, there was this period of time where the transition should have started, but it was delayed. And I was the intermediary between the two sides. And I was also taking calls. I had some really incredible calls from people like on the COVID task force for Trump who said, I have life-saving information that I'd like to talk to the Biden team, but I'm not allowed to. And I couldn't do anything about it. And so, but I would share information back and forth and it was an important conduit. And then once the formal transition started, Chris Liddell actually talked to Jeff Zients. They communicated. I actually put them together in a text and they communicated. And then that led to a conversation between Mark Meadows and Ron Klain, the outgoing and incoming chief of staff. And then I kind of got out of the way. And they were talking together. Mm-hmm. And actually, that allowed me to take a vacation on January 6th. Once I got word of what was happening, then my vacation was over. Yeah. And then you began talking again between the two sides? Yes. And then I tried. And then basically, I tried to do everything I can to facilitate these last 14 days. Transition by text. That, that it would have been convenient if they left you on there. You could you could still be watching the the government work. Um, let, let me ask you. Let me ask you this: um, Why is it healthy? You sort of alluded to this with George W. Bush. Why is it healthy to have someone with a business background doing this kind of government and political work with transitions of power? A business background like the one you have. So a transition planning effort is essentially a non-political, non-partisan organization effort. It's basically a planning effort. It requires like engineering, like planning of sequencing of what's coming next. You have to put pieces in place, operations in place, personnel in place. So for example, Biden started in early May, in early March, And by election day, he had 800 people on his transition team, 800. And the day after the election, they were ready to go. And um, on the inauguration day, he had 1,100 people start work in the government, 1,100, which is more than Trump and Obama had combined. Um, Have you decided if you're going to do more history work? I know you're very busy with your being the dean of the business school at American um, have you decided what might be next for you in a history sense if you're going to do something more? I haven't decided. I've had a lot of fun with the book. It's a great subject. It's intellectually interesting. If you're interested in politics, management, and history, it's hard to imagine something more interesting. And I'm enjoying talking to people like you about the book and about the ideas and about how we can strengthen our democracy. David Marchick, the author, the um the uh, person behind Transition by Text, and also the co-author of The Peaceful Transfer of Power, an oral history of America's transitions. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, and it was a lot of fun. Check out the book. Check out his Twitter feed, at Dean Marchick. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. 
Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.